Hey guys, welcome to episode 97 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. We hope you're all doing well and you're ready for our story today. Uh, we just want to first thank everyone, like we always do. I'm sure people are getting tired of it. But there was a lot of recent reviews and they were really great. So we just want to tell everyone how much we appreciate that. And we also want to thank our new patrons from our Patreon page. And at the end of this episode, we're going to name all of our new patrons. And we're so excited for you to join the Patreon family. And if you want more episodes of A True Crime Couple, you can visit our Patreon page to enjoy the 43 more episodes that we have for you on that platform. And you can do that by going to patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. Okay, so I got all that out of the way. You did it. (laughs) (laughs) Are you ready, I'm ready. Let's do it. So at 3 p.m. in the afternoon on Sunday, November 22nd, 1987, a call came in to 911 dispatch. A man named Wesley Lindquist was on the line. He was saying that there was a body just off of Highway 17 by the Dismal Swamp Canal located just near the Virginia-North Carolina border. He said that without a doubt, the girl was dead. About 15 minutes later, officers from the Chesapeake Police Department arrived at the scene. Now, the reason why officers from the Chesapeake Police Department are going to arrive at the scene, even though the girl's body was found in North Carolina, was the man that called Wesley Lindquist. He was from Chesapeake. And um, we'll get into what he was doing there, but... That's the police department that he calls, so that's the one that responds. But once it's determined that the body was in North Carolina, then the two departments are going to work pretty well together. So I just wanted to explain that there. Yeah, which is actually rare. (laughs) I always feel like there's uh, battling for supremacy when there's multiple police departments involved. But that's good. Yeah, we do. We're off to a good start. (laughs) You do see that a lot where police departments do get territorial, um, especially in older cases. And this is 1987, so you would think there would be some feelings of that there. But I guess it's a little bit different when you're talking about rural towns. I mean, Chesapeake's not that rural, but Elizabeth City, North Carolina is. So sometimes rural police departments are used to leaning on bigger police departments for help. So That's true. That takes some ego away when you don't have a big budget. (laughs) Yeah, right? And then someone else can come in and kind of... Save the day. Save the day, yeah. (laughs) I wish we could do that for our bills. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, oh, someone come and help us. Just kidding. (laughs) So this was not a common place for a person to pull off on the side of the road. So immediately the police are going to question why this man had been there. Well, Lindquist's answers were not your common answers as to why a man would pull off on the side of the road. Like, it's not your typical, like, I just had to use the bathroom story. It was uh, quite interesting. So Lindquist stated that he had been in church that morning at the Harvest Assembly of God Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. During the sermon, the pastor spoke about abused women and the support that they needed from the congregation. This sermon stirred something within him, he said, and he felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to leave the church. So he did. He told the baffled officers that he knew in his head that he had to go to North Carolina, even though he had never ventured down there before. So he drove south down Route 17. 
And once he crossed the border, he stopped after a few minutes and pulled to the side of the road. From there, he sat in his car and he prayed and he read the Bible for hours. At around 2.30 p.m., he decided to stop and take a walk near the water's edge because he needed a break. When he was at the banks of the canal, he looked down and saw the body of a woman. Her face was submerged in the water, and she was naked. Her clothes hung from tree branches that surrounded her. Lindquist said that where the body was in the canal, from where he stood, was down a very deep incline. He didn't know if she was real or if she was dead, so he chose to go down the embankment and check. And as soon as he felt her cold body, he knew she was dead. He also saw, as he got closer, that she'd been shot over 20 times. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Lindquist scrambled back up to his truck, and he got in and drove as quickly as he could to the nearest payphone that he could find. He told dispatch that he would meet the officers where he had been parked originally, and here he was telling the story of divine intervention. His story was definitely an interesting one. I mean, I don't think we've ever covered a body discovery quite like that by someone saying that they were compelled by the Holy Spirit to find a body. Um, yeah, it's it's a little, I don't want to say bizarre, right? Because, I mean, people are religious, right? But there are gonna, there's going to be people that find that odd. I mean, it's just the way the world oh, is, yeah, unfortunately. Oh, yeah, it's uh, eerie. So, so the, first, the first thing I'll, like, I'm thinking of is I would want to be in this gentleman's position. And the reason why I say that is because you call up the police because you stumbled across a body. It's almost like if you were to start a fire, a building goes up in flames, and you and then you call the like the fire department, and then you come to the scene as like a first responder. Yeah, I saw the building on fire. I called the you know I called a few guys. It's right. like that. They are always going to look at and question the person that found the body, especially if it's there's strange circumstances surrounding how that person found the body. Also, let's not forget the fact that he accurately, like like counted every bullet wound i mean she suffered 20 gunshot wounds well he didn't like accurately count he just knew that there was like over there like, was a multitude of, of he, gunshots wounds. yeah he okay. said his his words were when he went down there was it looked like there were over two dozen okay. gunshot wounds like he didn't specifically know how many okay but she was naked so it was really easy for him to see points of entry i got you i see what you're saying i still wouldn't want to be the guy to find it no. Um, and I think it is really interesting, too, And as we get later on into the case, that the sermon was about abused women. So That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It makes you think, right? It does. But police were questioning his intentions, his motives. I mean, how did he pick that random spot to pull over on the road? And he found the body. So they are going to have to rule him out first. 
And with a few phone calls, they were really able to establish alibis for him from the day prior all the way up until the church service that he left that morning. So he was cleared quite quickly. So the man was thanked and sent back to his home in Virginia. As the crime scene technicians worked to comb the woods and the canal embankment for evidence. Once they had completed their work, the woman's body was taken to the state crime lab. It had been determined by a medical examiner that although she was stripped of her clothes, she had not been raped. She had been shot 27 times. Wow. Very aggressive. Definitely overkill there. And most likely, if she was shot 27 times, that means, depending on what was used to shoot her to death, this person must have had to reload. Oh, yeah. That's a good point to make. So the intent was totally there. Because, <laughs> I mean, I don't I don't know gun laws back in the 80s, but I'm sure even then there were gun uh, capacity laws, like magazine capacities. Mm-hmm. So, like, most likely this person had to reload to do it. Yeah, well, it is um, going to be later determined that the weapon that was used to shoot her was a nine-shot revolver. So you're right. He would have had to, or, or she, I mean, I, obviously I know the outcome of this. Who am I? kidding i do not (laughs) uh sorry john spoiler alert it's a man that does this Mm -hmm. okay um so he's gonna have to reload at least twice thinking that there were nine bullets originally in the first time he he began shooting so at least twice he had to reload but it is going to come to pass that we learned that the weapon had to be reloaded three times okay so you're right Good, co- good catch there. You're getting good <laughs> at tr- this. Hey, I try. <laughs> there were also numerous small scrapes on her body. And this is the report, obviously, from the medical examiner. Tree fibers were found in the victim's hair. And one bloody print was found on her chest. Now, it could not be determined whether or not it was a footprint or a palm print that was left on her chest. Because by the time she was in the canal and the like amount of water everything was the print was deteriorated the woman was also missing a front tooth and it appeared that there were ligature marks on the victim's wrists that were similar to patterns that would have been made by a handcuff so the chesapeake police in conjunction with the elizabeth city police department were able to determine that the woman's body appeared to be dumped down the embankment This would coincide with the small scrapes on her body if she were obviously thrown down a steep embankment towards a canal. And there were small trees around the body and limbs of larger trees that had bullet holes in them. No bullet casings or handcuffs were found at the scene. So the detectives who surveyed the scene stated that they believed that the victim was killed elsewhere and then thrown down the embankment and her clothes were thrown after her, which is obviously why they were like strewn across branches. So whoever did this then shot at the victim several times because that would explain the bullet holes in the trees surrounding the body. Like this person just shot down at the body to ensure that she was dead. It's a pretty cold-hearted thing to do. Yeah, it's also... Like, to to shoot your gun like that, right? I mean, I know it's off of a highway, of course. 
you know, and I know that it must be a little desolate. You know Route 17, we take it to get to my mom and my sister's That's house. right. That's right. So, like, you have to think, though, you would probably have to do it during the cover of night because, you know, obviously if a, you see a car being you know, off the side of the road doing something, it's kind of bizarre. You wouldn't want to do it during the daytime, right? Yeah, well, the so where this was, where the car's parked on the side of the road, you would have to walk further into the woods and then you'd be standing on the embankment. So nobody from the road would have seen this person shooting down at the body. So they were concealed. Okay. All right. I just wanted to no, just kind of throw that out there because... That's my job. I'm here yeah. to clear up questions. That would be odd for no one to like witness that taking place. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure people saw the vehicle on the side of the road, but it's not strange to see a a vehicle on the side of the road because it might have broken down and they got a ride from someone else or they were walking to a payphone because it is the 1980s correct so this was the observation that the detectives made too because the victim herself had a lot of blood on her body but there was no blood found on the ground beneath or around her body Hmm. so it seems like she was Probably initially shot somewhere else and then thrown down the embankment and shot again. Okay. I mean, yeah, I guess so. Because if she's dead and she was shot, she's not going to be bleeding. That's true. So the victim had no identifiers on her persons, nor did she have an ID anywhere around her. So she was entered into the system as a Jane Doe. And that's when our story is going to shift slightly. And it's going to be a little bit later on the very same day at 6.42 p.m. The Chesapeake police received a phone call from a man named Tom Bonney. He said that he wanted to speak with Officer Hardison. Now, when he was asked as to why he wanted to speak to that particular officer, he stated that he had spoken to the officer previously about wanting to file a missing persons report for his daughter. However, when he tried to report her missing, the officer had told him that not enough time had passed to file the report. But at this point, it had been 24 hours and his daughter still was not home. So Tom Bonney was wanting to file that police report. A different officer was sent out to the Bonnie home to take the missing persons report. Her father said that he had last seen his daughter, Kathy, who was 19 years old, at the 7-Eleven store where he took her to look at a truck. Tom Bonnie owned an auto parts salvage business, and he had received a call on the night of November 21st from a man who wanted to sell him his blazer. He knew that his daughter wanted a four-wheel drive vehicle, so he asked if she wanted to come along while he went to the nearby 7-Eleven on Route 17 to take a look at it. So she agreed to go with him. And the father and daughter waited in the parking lot for the man to get there. A few minutes later, the man shows up in a white blazer, obviously the one that he said he was selling, so everything seemed all good up to this point. And when the man got out of the car... He said that Kathy called out his name. She called him John. And it was like she was excited to see him. Like she knew him. Okay. That's that's uh, that's kind of interesting. It's a small world. Small you know? world. So Tom Bonney continued to explain that the man rushed to greet his daughter. 
And then he told her to get in the car, like, oh, I'll take you for a ride to see if you like it. So she agreed before Bonnie could even say anything. And the man went around to the other side of his blazer and held the door open for Kathy to get in. She got in and then he got in next and they drove off. And this was all before Bonnie could even get out of his own car and see what the license plate of the blazer was that his daughter was leaving in. And since then, he has not heard from his daughter. Hmm. I mean, that that is a little um, bizarre that she would know this person. She would be, you know, so quick to just jump in his car um, to not even like be like, oh, you know, dad, this is so and so. I know him. This is how I know him. Um don't worry, everything's fine. Like, I, you know, he's not bad or anything. You know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? Just to kind of like, uh, like to reassure the father, like, okay, this person's a good person. I'm just going to go on a test drive and that's it. But to just like kind of jump in and leave is kind of weird. I do think that that's strange. I don't think, I mean, she went with her father to look at the car and obviously he was knowledgeable about cars because he did own an auto salvage lot or whatever. Um, So you would think that she would want her father to come along, introduce him to this guy that she knew, but that's not what happened. And she didn't even like say anything to her father. So it is a really bizarre missing persons report that this officer is taking, because usually when someone's reported missing, it's it's never like this. Like, oh, I know who she went with. Right. Also, weird. uh, And maybe this has nothing to do with it, but I'll just throw it out there. Like. I mean, you're 19, you know, she's 19 years old. So in lots of people's eyes, you're still a baby, right? Like you're an adult, but you're still a baby kind of thing, you know? So, but you feel like an adult, but you feel like an adult. So of course you're, you want your input, your parents input because they're there to help you. Just like if you were to be with your mom or, you know, your mom or dad or, or likewise myself, Mm -hmm. um, being at that age, I'd want their approval and I'd want their knowledge maybe yeah oh honey we're i'm still seeking my parents approval (laughs) yeah so so you know what i'm saying like i think it's odd to just not be like okay bye dad right i don't know that's kind of sticking with me is like i wouldn't leave my mom or my dad just wondering high and dry and and leave with someone that i just called out to and that's it i think that's a good assessment to make and and we will as the story goes on we'll learn about the relationship between tom bonnie and his daughter kathy right okay So Tom Bonney is going to give a description of the blazer and the man whom he knew as John. Is it you? Oh, no. Not born yet. No, I was not even born. I'm a (laughs) 90s baby. Early 90s baby. So as the officer was taking the report, he heard over the radio the call that a body was found in a nearby canal. So once he left the Bonney residence... With the most up-to-date picture of Kathy that the Bonnie said that they had, which was her license, apparently when she went to jump into this car with John, she left her purse behind in her father's car. So they had her license, and that's what they gave the officer as the picture. So the officer called in to the officers at the scene to hear more about the woman that had been found. He thought that maybe the two cases were connected, so he drove the license to the crime scene. I mean, these are some freaking good police officers. They are. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think because they think something's going on, like with this this girl. 
Well, in this story, maybe. It's a shady disappearance story. But also, I mean, you put two and two together. You have a missing girl and you have a found girl. Maybe they're the same. Yeah. So by the time he got there, the body had been removed. The detective that was working the case, Martin Williams, stated that he didn't think the girl in the license picture looked like the girl that had been found. However, it was really hard to tell from a license picture if that was the person. So thinking that the officer was on to something, Detective Williams called back to the Bonnie residence and Tom Bonnie is going to pick up the phone. And Officer Williams basically says to him, I have your daughter's missing persons report. I want to talk to you a little bit more about it. And I would love to actually pick up a picture that was a little bit better and easier to work with. So would you mind if I came over? And the response that he got was something that Williams had never heard before or heard from a parent of a missing child. Because usually they're hysterical and willing to do anything to help find their child. But Bonnie told him that it was way too late, and it's 10 p.m. at this point, and that he would leave a picture in the mailbox if he needed it, but he was going to bed, and he hung up on him before the conversation could even continue. Very bizarre. I think that if that was my kid, I'd I'd be up all hours of the night, and I'd actually um, love that phone call. You know what I mean? Love that phone call because that means that they are actively searching and trying to investigate my daughter's disappearance. So whatever they need from me, I'm going to do it. Yeah, I completely agree. Usually we hear the opposite from families that they feel like the police aren't doing enough because obviously family in desperation just wants to find their child. So in reality, if that child's not being found, nothing is ever enough. So I do find this weird as well and Williams thought it was strange too like why would Bonnie not want to talk to him more about this I mean I think I would be like painting a picture of my child if I didn't have a photograph of them right yeah so the next day he tracked the man down at his auto salvage lot Tom Bonnie was in different spirits during this day He explained that Kathy his daughter had worked as a secretary there for some time and that there was something that he really wanted to show him. While he was in his daughter's bedroom, he had found a sexually explicit letter in her diary. It detailed an affair that she was having with a married man, and it discussed other past sexual experiences. It was very graphic, and Bonnie made it very clear that it disgusted him. The detective looked over the letter quickly and thanked him for it and began to fold it and put it back in his pocket. Bonnie stopped him and asked to have the letter back. And Williams kind of looked at him strange and was like, no, this is evidence now. Like, I can't give you this letter back. Also, why do you want it? Like, this could lead us to what happened to your daughter. She's having an affair with a married man. Yeah. No, you're 100% right here. I I think that what I'm starting to find out is that maybe there is something suspicious going on with the father. And I think what's happening maybe is that he's going from like interested to not interested, like, you know, within day, day, day in and day out. Right. He's having these low lows and then these high highs where it's like, okay, I'm interested. And then, okay, I'm not anymore. So what I'm thinking is that maybe he, uh, he produced this letter 
but now he's afraid that this letter might be analyzed that it's his handwriting. Oh, that's a that's and, an interesting and maybe, point. And that's why they, he don't want it back. And then the reason why he had no interest yesterday was because he was probably writing the letter that he just somehow found out of nowhere the morning of. Interesting theory. Yeah. Bonnie told Williams that his daughter had been dating one of his former employees, a man named John Hoskins. Now, this isn't obviously the John in the blazer. Blazer John. Blazer John. Um, when he found out about the relationship 10 days prior, he fired Hoskins from the auto salvage lot. And after talking about that, I mean, maybe Hoskins is the married man from the letter, but we're not, we're never clear on that. So, and we don't, we're never even clear on whether or not Kathy even had a sexual relationship with Hoskins or her father just suspected that it was taking place. So we're unsure if, if that even happened, and we're unsure if he's the married man from the letter. If, I mean, and you're saying if she even wrote the letter. Right. So after telling the detective that, he repeated the same story that he told the other officer when he was filing the missing persons report. Detective Williams thanked him and told him that the police were going to be by his residence the next day to dust Kathy's room for prints. So Bonnie was a little confused by this, and he said, why did the police have to come inside my home if she went missing at the 7-Eleven? And William said, well, this is just standard procedure. But he did seem very annoyed by that. Well, he's he's annoyed because he, if if he indeed is doing all this, it's just they're hot on his tail right now. And the more that he does all this weird behavior, let's just say, yeah. they're going to be more inclined to go investigate. They're going to push in his door to find out what's going on. So the more he pushes back and questions every um, process of investigation, they're going to be like, okay, this dude's guilty or hiding something that might break open this case. There's a lot of red flags here. Yeah. I agree. So once Kathy's disappearance began to gain traction... And this all happened within a day like this caught on pretty quickly. Reporters visited the Bonnie house to ask for statements from Tom and his wife, Dorothy, as well as their description of their daughter. During the family interviews, Tom Bonnie was a soft spoken man, and he explained that he worked really hard to provide a good life for his large family, but things weren't always easy and that they loved Kathy so much. And he really made an emotional plea for his daughter's safe return. So that was the image that was being projected off into the media. Okay. Now, in later interviews with Kathy's closest friend, a woman named Jill, she said that Kathy was cheerful, generous, and kind. The kind of friend that everyone wanted. She said that Kathy was like a mother to all of her younger siblings. That she really had to do everything around the house and she was also her siblings emotional support she did the grocery shopping cooking cleaning she made sure that they all had school lunches and if they were ever upset she was the one who comforted them so she seemed like a really amazing woman at 19 years old she had a lot of yeah. responsibility that's interesting it was very it's i mean it's not common to have someone like that in the family yeah you know when there's other siblings there as well well i mean sometimes you can find that when 
there's a large family and the parents tend to be absent. Usually the oldest sibling, which Kathy was, kind of takes over and takes care of everybody. That's very nice. So Kathy had dropped out of high school and she had been working at her father's lot ever since as a secretary. But her real goal was to be a writer, a crime writer. Really? Yeah, she loved writing murder mysteries and she was really good at it. She had like a lot of short stories that um, her friend said that were really good. That's cool. It is really cool. Unfortunately, I mean, it's heartbreaking to say and you don't even want to, I don't even want to have to say this, but her life is going to reflect her art, which is really tragic. Yeah, it is. It also made me like go through this deep introspection about myself and then my paranoia about something happening to me. But I mean, (laughs) let's not talk about that. I feel like that's just you, like, all the time. It's my anxiety. <laughs> okay, honestly, it is. Like, it's uh, it's interesting. Okay, yes. I Thank you for using that word. I appreciate it. <laughs> and not unhealthy. <laughs> On November 24th, 1987, a member from the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation, who are also going to get involved... And really the reason why the State Bureau of Investigation gets involved is because the media really takes on this case. So it's kind of like, let's get this solved. So that's why you're seeing an agent come out. So the agent comes out on November 24th to visit Tom Bonnie's salvage lot. This is very reminiscent of making a murderer. I was thinking that. With the salvage car lot and searching it. I was literally going to wait for you to like stop speaking and then interject and you took that from me but that's okay took the words it's so true though but it's so true though you're right especially because now what they're doing is bonnie told the police in the police report that he didn't take his car to drive his daughter to the 7-eleven to look at the blazer he took one of his wreckage vehicles to drive there and it was basically just like a beater that was never used and bonnie was searching with the agent to look for this vehicle throughout his lot and he didn't he they couldn't find it so he thought okay that's really strange and while they were searching all bonnie was talking about was the sexually explicit letter that he had found and the fact that detective williams still had it yeah he seems fix uh, so fixated on that but i mean i guess it's because he's not he's trying not to draw attention to the fact that he lost a company vehicle in his salvage yard which is crazy because you can you know dispose of a vehicle in the salvage yard in like five seconds well it's also yes and and that's the fear here because he left on november 21st it's only november 24th so how do you not remember what you did with a car within the past three days and it's going to come out later on that bonnie's going to like flippantly tell detective williams oh i think i remember selling that car yeah so it's very strange so the same day kathy's room was searched and dusted for prints the only thing that was found in the room that were considered a little suspect but totally normal and healthy is some adult magazines and a pair of handcuffs Now, the handcuffs were a little interesting because it did seem as if maybe the ligature marks that were around her wrist were from a pair of handcuffs. So that's why the handcuffs were taken as evidence. But, I mean, the police in no way did they imply that there was anything wrong with the fact that she had adult magazines. It's just those were things that were taken into evidence 
because her father did seem to be obsessed with her her sex life. Yeah, which screams out to me, you know, like those weird. Well, yeah, but you know, like those. Um, I don't. I don't know if you want to call them cases, but like there are times where it's like a father or a mother gets so angry with like their um with the promiscuity yes thank you um of their child and and like whatever and like thinks that they're like uh, once again i'm just using these terms as a way to describe it like you know if if, you know he thinks that she's um um like she's going around like a sex worker like 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 all the derogatory terms i really i i'm trying you're so adorable Uh, you know what i'm trying to say like you're thinking that the father is judging his daughter for the fact that she's choosing to go out and have a sex life at 19 years old right and then that would maybe be motive for him getting rid of her yeah he might be really angry about yeah like so like i'm saying all the derogatory terms that he would use to describe that i don't even want to say them um and that's kind of what would maybe bring a motive to him if he is the one that did it that would be a motive to someone like him who is very fanatical about it yeah Mm -hmm. you know I totally see where you're coming from. And if he turns out to be a little bit more religious than most, that's even more of a reason. Yes. So the next day, using the prints that were lifted from her bedroom, and really, I mean, obviously this was something that Detective Williams did not want to tell to Tom Bonney, you know, because right now he's not considered a suspect, but he doesn't want to say, hey, we want to lift prints off of your daughter's bedroom surfaces because we want to compare it to a victim that we have in the morgue so it wasn't something that he really wanted to share with him because he's trying to save him from that if it's not her body but the medical examiner was able to determine that the woman that had been found by Lindquist in the dismal swamp canal was in fact 19 year old kathy bonnie Okay, so so there it you was go. her, but yeah. he wasn't able to determine from the license picture because it just wasn't a really good high quality picture. Plus, the victim had been um, overnight lying in her face had been in water, so it was really difficult to determine her facial features, which is why it was hard to identify the body. So Detective Williams chose to bring the family the heartbreaking news himself. And in the living room were both of Kathy's parents and her paternal grandmother, so Tom Bonnie's mother. Her mother, Dorothy, instantly began to sob, but Tom Bonnie jumped up from the couch and grabbed his chest and then proceeded to fall to the ground. He was screaming as if he was having a heart attack. So Williams was so caught off guard by this whole scene, um, and he called for paramedics to come to the residence. He said that while they were waiting for the paramedics to arrive, that Tom Bonnie's mother, so Kathy's grandmother, was just kind of like staring at her son in disgust. It it seemed to him that Tom Bonnie was doing a really bad job of acting like he was having a heart attack when he found out his daughter was dead and everyone in the room knew that he was acting and his mother was like, you're embarrassing. That's interesting. Yeah. Because once again, he's trying to act. He's acting. He's trying to make it seem like he's so distraught that he had a heart attack. Right. So when the paramedics responded to the scene, they took all of Bonnie's vitals and he was deemed to be okay. Of course. Of course. And that and, and that's funny that 
like the other family members were there to be like, okay, what the dude. Hell? Okay, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Just stop it. And I do, it is, I do think it's good that Detective Williams was there because he also was able to witness this. And it makes me think, were there ulterior motives in wanting to give the news to see the reactions? Because detectives do always say the way family reacts is poignant. And it may be just that people react differently to grief, but this is a bizarre reaction. I don't think anyone oh, yeah. can argue that. Well, I think everything up to this point is is a bizarre reaction and, and a bizarre take on something. Everything about this everything. case is strange. How the body was found, his reactions to right. the whole investigation. But like I said earlier, you have to understand this is a buildup of investigators realizing that his reactions are odd and are not like they don't warrant like they warrant further investigation. Correct. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's crazy. So the biggest lead that they had in the investigation was unknown Blazer John and his blazer. However, no vehicles in the area matched the description that was given by Tom Bonney. Now, Tom was asked to come to the station to give a physical description of this man, John, to a sketch artist. So. And I'm trying really I'm trying to keep it together here. He was describing Blazer John to the sketch artist. And at the end of the session, the artist looked at the picture and it was himself. <laughs> wait, wait, so it was the sketch artist? Yeah. So he's just looking at the sketch artist and like... <laughs> yes. Like it looks... I'm sorry. Just like the sketch artist. It's like, come on, dude. Like, what are you doing here? So he he described the physical appearance of this sketch artist to the sketch artist, and he did a self-portrait. So (laughs) detectives were like, there's something crazy happening here. And Detective Williams basically had enough with the strange behaviors of Tom Bonney. First, he didn't want to give him the picture. Then he was weird about the letter, and he went on and on about it to the SBI agent. And then he had this bizarre story about this man named John but no one could find John and the blazer nobody had the blazer within the town or within a large radius um, the way it was described and now this sketch this is sketchy it's very bizarre I'm sorry I don't think I've ever laughed at a piece of evidence and a story in my entire life no I know and you he described that, that, the sketch like, artist. That is that is extremely <laughs> comical, and I I would you would imagine that would be in like a like a sitcom or like a right. uh, like SNL or something like that. Like this is ridiculous. You literally did describe the sketch artist. <laughs> oh, I can't believe that. Oh, Jesus. So something was totally off here about the details of Kathy's disappearance. So the detectives decided to dig into the Bonnie family history and they found out that there wasn't just something wrong with tom bonnie's account of the night of kathy's disappearance but everything that he was projecting so like i said previously the media was all over this case tom bonnie was interviewed a lot and he played the role of a doting father with a full house of children whom he loved and he worked really hard to support However, this was not the case. Williams uncovered a long record of child neglect, 
and abuse charges. In fact, Dorothy and Tom had six children in total, but there was only four living in the house. And that's because one had been taken from their custody due to abuse and neglect. And the other child had been abandoned because he had a birth defect. I mean, that's sad. It's really sad. So Bonnie, in fact, was moving from location to location in order to avoid follow-ups from child services and creditors that were after him. And he he never moved from the area. Like, he always, he owned the car salvage lot, but he moved from school districts so the schools couldn't continue following up on the abuse and neglect charges that's interesting um i'm I'm also but i'm surprised they never went to his like his business that he owned unless it was in someone else's name or something sometimes what happens is if districts are overwhelmed um and we know social services are always overwhelmed that they're not going to follow up with a case where the children have moved i mean yeah i guess you're right and it, but now it makes sense that the oldest the oldest daughter here, our victim, now now I kind of am putting it together that that's why she was the way she was with her other siblings yeah. because they failed to be parents. Yeah, to give their children any like support, love. Right. So Tom Bonnie was not the docile man that he was pretending to be in his interviews. In reality, he was a controlling and domineering man when it came to his family. And he was trying to do the same thing with police. Like he's trying to control the investigations and he's trying, he's thinking he's being manipulative, but he's not. He literally described the sketch artist. (laughs) So Dorothy was interviewed about her husband's behavior with their children. And she admitted that he could be abusive and that things have not always been that way. Like his abuse got worse over time. And that he is prone to delirious outbursts, especially when it comes to religious topics, like you said before. Yeah. He would go from being a super religious person to claiming that he was God himself. In one episode, he stood on the porch and he was ripping the pages from his Bible. One night during his worst episode, he actually pointed his gun at his wife, but then quickly put it down. His employees were interviewed regarding their boss and his behavior, and they all had the same things to say as Dorothy. So her stories were totally corroborated. He seemed very unhinged, and it seemed like his delirium was based off of religious thought. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, all of it, like as far as like, you know, he goes from one extreme to the next and then he's fine again. I mean, I, I don't know why he does it, but. I mean, it, it, all these kids are saying the same thing. Like, everyone's saying it, so it must be true. It's very, yeah. It has to be. Yeah. Well, Kathy's siblings and her friend Jill were questioned by police. They also stated that Bonnie was very controlling of his children, but especially his eldest daughter, Kathy. He did not want her going out, socializing, having friends, and he especially did not allow her to date. When she would go out, he would follow and spy on her to see if she was lying about where she was going and who she was going to be with. That's so scary. Her father was stalking her. Right. But that also means that his story is absolute bogus 
Because if that was the case, he would have followed her when he got into her quote unquote John Blazer guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so he, he he's proving his story BS. Well, no, he's not proving his story wrong. His children and that's true. Kathy's okay. friends are saying, are saying that. Yeah. So, I mean, th- th- there you go. His story's an, an utter lie. It's all BS. Right. If he were to have followed her in the past, he would totally have done so this time because he didn't even know who this John person was. Exactly. If he really was this domineering, abusive father. I mean, these are extremes. Extreme lengths to like control control his daughter. your daughter. So I I think like I said I can say now that that whole story is not even real. Right. Once when a boy that Kathy was secretly dating showed up at the house to speak with him, basically to like introduce himself, he told him to leave and he threatened to kill him if he didn't get off of his property. Her friend Jill said that she suspected that Bonnie was molesting Kathy. She asked her once if her father had been doing that to her. And she said that her friend began to cry and told her that she couldn't talk about that. So Jill understood that as her friend's admission that her father was abusing her sexually. And out of respect for her friend, she just never really brought it up again. So we may have confirmation that he was sexually abusing his daughter which considering all of his other actions and feelings and the way he's acted during this investigation and the fact that he was so upset about that letter it kind of leads me to think that maybe that was a, a very strong possibility that that was happening yeah i think also like you said like he had uh, such an interest in her sex life yeah well, maybe that that's the reason this is why yeah So the day following these interviews, Kathy's wake was held. Detectives were there to observe the interactions of the family and watch those who came and went. However, they were unable to do the latter because Bonnie controlled every person who was allowed to come into the funeral home. He was only allowing his family and some of his wife's family. The detectives witnessed Kathy's friend Jill and other friends try to enter the funeral home. But before they could even make it into the building, they were stopped by Bonnie's sister, who was Kathy's aunt, who informed them that they were not on the list and that her brother did not want them there. The following day at the funeral, Jill and the same group of friends tried to attend. Bonnie was so upset at their kind of like arrival at the funeral, at her burial, that he stopped the service And he went up to Jill and screamed at her and the others to leave. In a dramatic and tense scene, the friends refused to leave. But after seeing Kathy's hurt siblings, they chose to leave. Jill, in her later interviews, said that Bonnie tried to separate Kathy from the people that she loved in her life and that he was trying to do the same in death, which is so sad. So sad. This guy's just a monster. He's a monster. He needs to control. Even after her death, he still like wanted to control everything. That's sick. It's so sad. So after the funeral, the detectives were called by Bonnie. He let them know that he had actually forgotten that the car that they were looking for in his lot, the one that he used to drive with Kathy to the 7-Eleven, well, he actually sold it. 
And at this point, police had had enough with Tom Bonney. They called him in for another interview at the station. They laid everything out for him. They said, we think you're lying to us about John, the blazer, the sketch, everything. We think there's something that you're not telling us. Offended, Bonnie stormed out of the station. He was refusing to talk to them and he was really angry. So detectives were kind of at a loss here, but they were also concerned for the welfare of the children that were still in the Bonnie home, especially now because Bonnie was their number one suspect and they know of his troubled past, especially with his children. So Detective Williams petitioned a judge to have the children removed from the Bonnie household. A judge agreed and all of the children were taken from the home and placed within the same foster home so they could remain together. As you can imagine, this made Bonnie very angry because he no longer had control. He called Williams the day his children were removed and screamed at him for interfering with his family. Williams told him that he would put in a good word with child services if he helped him find the car that he had forgot he sold. So basically, Williams is not going to put in a good word with child services, but he is using the fact that the children are now in foster care as leverage to get Bonnie to reveal some type of information here. I mean, and that's a great tactic. I mean, what better way, right, than seize control from him because he needs it, right? Yes. And then give it back to him by saying, listen, I'll give you back. I'll try to get you back your family if you cooperate with me and help me find this car. I mean, it's 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 ingenious. It's simple, but ingenious. Right. And, you know, it does. The one side is like, okay, are there children that are like kind of hold hanging in the balance of this? But in reality, the children are being better taken care cared of in this foster family situation because they're all together and they really were in a, in a good home. Which so. is actually really good, though, too, I might add, yeah. is that they, they were able to keep all the children together because there's nothing worse yes. than already your home's broken now and then you're splitting the kids apart that that, that would be horrible so the right. fact that they were able to keep them all together that's, that's well, a plus. It's good. It's really good so one week later on december 10th 1987 bonnie called detective williams he said that he had found the car and that he would have it towed back to his lot the detective told him absolutely not Leave the car there and police will pick it up. It needs to remain in police custody from this point on. But Bonnie had already hung up the phone on him before he could even get those words out. So it seemed that Bonnie had a plan. Williams had a sneaking suspicion that Bonnie was really already headed to go get the car. So as soon as that phone conversation ended, Detective Williams issued an APB on the tow vehicles from his salvage lot so all the on-duty officers went looking for him however tom bonnie could not be found anywhere in the chesapeake area wow okay so i mean i mean so it seems like he's on his way to go get that car yeah that's crazy and tom bonnie was definitely on the way to wherever he had sold this car because about an hour later, Detective Williams received a call from a man in Virginia Beach. He worked at a car dealership, obviously the one who Bonnie sold the vehicle to. 
And he said, we have a man over here screaming that he needs us to hook his car up to his tow truck because he's working with the police and he needs to take the vehicle because the police need it as evidence. And Bonnie had actually given the man William's contact information. Okay. I mean, <laughs> Well, he's, he's hysterical at this point because he's really trying to get away with something. Yeah. So Williams told the man, well, he's kind of right, but mostly wrong. Please do not allow him to take that vehicle off your lot. He said, I'm on my way to you, but I'm also going to call the Virginia police because they can get there faster than I can. Because Chesapeake, Virginia is about half an hour away from Virginia Beach. So he knew the Virginia police could get there faster. So by the time the Virginia police got there, Bonnie had fled the scene. The vehicle was taken into police custody and analyzed. A bloodstain was found on the passenger side door and the trunk. There was a bullet hole in the lining of the roof. So that leads me to think that the shooting occurred within the car. And then, like, so you know how they said, like, if something took place, the murder took place not in the canal. I think it was potentially in the car. And the blood was, he, he tried to clean the blood the best he could, but there were still some traces of it. Okay. Obviously, testing wasn't the same then as it is now. But at least we know it took place in the vehicle, most likely. Well, potentially, yeah. yeah. So when the police went to arrest Bonnie at his residence, they found out that when he left the car dealership in Virginia Beach, he did not return home. He was on the run. A first-degree murder warrant was issued under his name, but he was nowhere to be found. It wasn't until six weeks later that he was spotted sleeping in his car in Indianapolis, Indiana. He was immediately arrested and flown back to Virginia. Williams personally flew there to accompany him on the journey back, and he questioned him at the airport. He asked Bonnie what really happened that night, and he said, I just went crazy, I guess. I have no idea. I couldn't stop. I know that. And Detective Williams asked, you just kept shooting? And Bonnie replied that he probably did. Williams then asked him about the reloading of the gun and how many times he had to do it. And he said, well, I remember some of it, but some of it I can't. Meaning like he doesn't remember reloading the gun. So as they were headed back to Virginia, Bonnie said that he couldn't explain how Kathy's body got into the canal. He denied putting her in the back of the car to transport her, so he doesn't remember any of that. He said that he disposed of the gun in a river back in Chesapeake, and once he got back to Virginia, he was driven down to Camden County, North Carolina. Now, this is where the search warrant was issued because that's where the body was found and the commission of the crime took place. So upon his arrival within Camden County, North Carolina, he was placed in jail. But as he was being walked into the jail, the media was waiting for him. As you can imagine, his elusiveness totally made the newspapers, especially because Kathy's disappearance was such big news. So now this is just like this continuation of this crazy story. So everyone in the area really is following it. So the media asked him questions about the case, fully expecting him to just keep walking into the jail. But Bonnie never really does what is expected of him and he stopped and started talking to them he told the media everything 
He said that he and Kathy had been driving down Highway 17. They were talking about the letter that he had found in her diary that she had written to her boyfriend. They began to argue about the letter, and she was hooting and hollering, his words, obviously, and she grabbed a pistol that was in the car. He went on to explain that the gun went off in her hand. The reporter then said, Well, Mr. Bonnie, the gun went off 27 times, and it was a nine-shot revolver, so it had to be reloaded at least two times. He didn't respond to the reporter's question, but he ended the conversation with, I just snapped. Okay. Well, we know now that that is true that it was her letter, so I was wrong about that. But you were right about him being upset because yeah. he he is religious and he may be molesting his daughter and he may have been doing it for a long time. He also feels, and this is horrible to say, but he feels like he owns his family and that Kathy is a piece of property that he owns. And the fact that she may be having relationships with other people is seen as a betrayal to him. So that's why the letter got him so upset. Right. Because he wants to control everything his family does. And I'm sure that letter was found at the job. No, it was fa- oh, it was in her personal in her pers- diary. Where was that? Is was that in, in her, her room? room? Okay. But he searched her room a lot and he searched all of his children's rooms. And what's really sad here is that Kathy most likely only is living at home with her parents because of her siblings. That's true. I mean, because she could, she was old enough to just leave to leave. Um, if if things got worse, but I know how hard that can be. Um, you know, even if there was no other, if there other was siblings. no like, even if there was no sexual abuse happening from the way Kathy seems, it seems like she might not have left her siblings because she wanted to continue taking care of them. Yeah. So it's a really sad situation. But now at least we have some truth and we know that it was her father that killed her. So once it was determined that Bonnie was the one who was responsible for his daughter's death, they do search his salvage yard and all of the vehicles there. And in the fuel tank of his salvage yard wrecker, shell casings that match the murder weapon were found. So basically at this point, Bonnie confessed to Williams and the media and it was clear that he did shoot at his daughter and he collected the shell casings and tried to dispose of them within the gas tank of the wrecker and at this point there was no way that his wife Dorothy was going to post bail for her husband who was really standing accused of killing their daughter and really at this point Dorothy cuts all ties with her husband okay I mean good Yeah, I would say that's probably a good choice. And really, even if she wanted to post bail financially, I don't think that she would have been able to because his bail was set pretty high. So the whole time they were preparing for the case, Bonnie's lawyer struggled to build up a defense case for their client. And this was mainly because Bonnie was doing a really poor job of aiding in his defense. He would rarely speak to his lawyers, and when he did, he would complain of headaches or just tell them that the gun went off, and that was all he could remember. When his lawyers would try to talk to him about his daughter being dead, he would deny that she was dead, and they would get into arguments over it. So it was really hard for them to try to even keep up with their client. 
While the lawyers fought with their client to help him, they received an interesting call from a doctor at Eastern State Medical Center. His name was Paul Dell. He told Bonnie's defense lawyers that he knew what was wrong with their client, and he wanted to help them. However, he couldn't tell them what was wrong with Bonnie. He needed to interview Bonnie first because he didn't want to taint the interview and what the outcome would be. And the exhausted lawyers, they agreed because there was nothing else for them to do. So in a taped session, Dr. Dell interviewed Tom Bonnie for 23 hours. Dell suspected that Bonnie had multiple personality disorder, known today as Dissociative Identity Disorder, or DID. Now, in order to diagnose him with this, he had to see one of his personalities emerge. Now, DID is a very controversial diagnosis, and many psychologists and psychiatrists do not believe it to even be a proper diagnosis. I'm sure some of you know what it is, but I just want to kind of touch upon it briefly because it has a lot to do with this case moving forward. In DID, a patient's mind, because of an extreme trauma that occurred in their childhood, created another or several alternate ego states. These can be known as alters or alter personalities. According to Dr. Pauline Gulig, from the psychiatry department at Wright State University in her peer-reviewed article entitled DID, A Controversial Disorder. These ego states are considered to be organized systems of behavior and experience whose elements are bound together by some common principle, but that are separated from the other such states by boundaries that are more or less permeable. So this means that the ego states have their own personalities, and they may or may not be aware of each other's existence. So these ego states are created to deal with the patient's trauma by protecting the primary or main person. They can do this by blaming them, taking responsibility for their actions, or trying to protect them. So this diagnosis was not something that was new in the 1980s. The first patient ever diagnosed with what will become known as dissociative identity disorder was a patient back in 1906. Then it became known as multiple personality disorder, which is how it's referred to throughout the entire case because the cases and the court hearings do take place in the late 80s and early 90s and the name didn't change then. So, but I'm going to refer to it as DID. So this is something that has always fascinated people. I mean, it is the topic of books and movies, and I think it's just because it's so interesting if you believe in its diagnosis. Yeah, I mean, it's that's uh, that's really difficult to like whether or not it's true or not. Like you know, like there's it's a it's hard it's a hard thing to like prove to be real. Yes. And that's what it is. It's it's kind of improvable. I think I would like to just say my opinion on it is I think it's ignorant to think that our brains don't possess 
the ability to do that where it's you have this crazy trauma let's say you've been through and your brain is trying to like your your yourself you're trying to protect yourself so you create an identity to protect yourself to compartmentalize like, to compartmentalize i don't think that that's not i i think it's i think it's real i think it can be real i to to an extent where like uh they maybe portray it in movies maybe not where someone has like 92 yeah, but alters. like but i do think that it's possible for you to kind of hide or you know in a way to protect yourself from past trauma well one thing that becomes really unfortunate with did is that if it is true it's fascinating and one thing that hinders it would be the fact that there are cases of people lying about it. And what happens, especially within a scientific field, is that if uh, one case is deemed to be unreliable, that kind of puts a a doubt into all of the cases. Well, yeah, it affects its credibility. And, yeah. I, and I, I know exactly what you're saying. Like, that is true. You might have one case where you know for a fact, oh my God, this is definitely DID. Yeah. And then you have the next case and you're like, uh, well, that person is making know. this up. Yeah. Well, many psychologists today believe that those diagnosed with DID were misdiagnosed and that instead they may have been suffering from something called borderline personality disorder. And this disorder includes, but is not limited to, the following symptoms. Fear of abandonment, unstable relationships, shifting self-image, impulsive or destructive behavior, self-harm, extreme emotional swings, chronic feelings of emptiness, and explosive anger. All of those feelings and emotional swings could really make you see how those changing feelings may seem to manifest as different people. Yeah. And, I mean, we'll get into a little bit more of, like, how someone's diagnosed with DID, but Dr. Gillick is going to explain, like, her theories on it, which tend to follow most of the beliefs of, you know, the psychology community today. All right, but first let's get into this 23-hour interview that happened on September 11th, 1988. In his notes, Dr. Dell stated that Bonnie at first seemed slow, almost childlike, and that he didn't remember large portions of his life. While speaking to Dell, he seemed to be in a trance-like state, and he was very unfocused. Within the first hour of the tapes, Dell was able to learn that Bonnie's father had been a firefighter who was very abusive to him and would often call him a bastard and beat him with the wide fireman's belt on a daily basis until he bled. He was also verbally abusive. When Dell asked if he shot his daughter, Bonnie said that he did not. Now, oftentimes to get these various alternates to come out, the doctor meeting with the patient will put the patient under hypnosis. And that is what he did with Bonnie. The camera then moved from the man's face to his hand. He was told to respond by using his fingertips. If he moved his pinky finger, the response was yes. And if he moved his pointer finger, the answer was no. Dell began asking questions about the night of the murder to try and elicit a response from one of the alternate personalities. In his notes, Dr. Dell 
said that by using hypnosis and the finger taps that he was able to determine that Bonnie had, including himself, well, he had nine alternate personalities and then himself. So there were 10 personalities living in his mind. Now, I don't know how he was able to determine this using finger taps because I haven't seen the full tapes, but he was able to determine that there were some names of these personalities. One personality was named Damien, the other preacher, the other hitman, and the other Viking. Okay. Another one comes out in the interview, Mammy, which Hmm. is actually his own grandmother. This is all very interesting to me, yes. but totally over my head. Like, I, I know nothing about this, but <laughs> this is so interesting to me. Like, this stuff, oh, my God. I know. This this, this is, it's mind-shattering. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, if this is real, I mean, this is crazy, Dan. Yeah. About 11 hours into the interview, some of the alternate personalities began to speak. Bonnie can be seen on the video speaking in different tone. He's claiming that he is Mammy, his own grandmother, who died when he was 14 years old. She was the one who would kind of look after and protect him after his father's beatings. She was trying to warn Kathy about what was happening. So it was kind of like the crime was happening while he was talking. So she was saying, he's going to do it to her. She needs to listen. She needs to run away. And then he exclaimed, I can't do anything. I can't do anything. All in like Mammy's voice. So basically she's trying to stop this crime from taking place. And by she, I mean like the personality. So the, that personality is trying to tell him not to do it. Trying to tell Kathy to run away. Okay, to run away. Okay. Then he switches back to himself, whom he refers to as Tommy, not Tom. He appears to be speaking to his daughter who has already been shot at this point. And he says, are you all right? Why do you look like that? What is the matter? Get back in the car. Oh, he's done shot you. Oh my God. And then he begins crying on the interview tape. Then the next personality that speaks is Damien. And Damien said, I control Tommy. He's so dumb. He don't know nothing. He gets in trouble all the time. He is weak. I am not. I am strong. Dell asked Bonnie what happened that night. And Damien started talking about Tommy. Tommy really wanted to show her a car, but then I took over. He was telling the truth about that. He did get a call about a stupid truck that they was going to go look at. They was going down to Cedar Road. We're going to make a right on Route 17, going to 7-Eleven. He was telling the truth, but I fixed it. I fixed him. I made a left turn. He's so stupid. He's a wimp. That's what was said. So then Dell asked Bonnie or Damien, did you make them make a left? Yes, was the reply back. And more than that, I control him. Damien went on to tell Dell that the shooting occurred while the letter that Tommy found was being discussed. He said that she was embarrassed and was saying sorry and that Tommy was being nice to her about it, 
but when he went to stop on the side of the road, a gun slid out from underneath her seat and she picked it up. She pointed the gun at him and called him a bastard, just like his father used to do when he would beat him. Then Damien said, she sure goofed when she did that. They struggled for the gun. And that was when she got out of the car and tried to run. And he, meaning Tom Bonnie, was just standing there crying. He was being such a wimp. So I took the gun and I shot her because Tom didn't do nothing. So this is interesting. He's claiming that his alt... Well, he's not claiming... What's being said in this tape is that his alternate personality, Damien, was actually the one responsible for the murder of Kathy. And I think in a way is implying that all of his negative or domineering violent behavior is is really this personality, Damien, which, you know, is considered to be sinister in association with religious purposes. But I what I found interesting in that is that he still was trying to clear his name within the Damien story. Like would Damien really care? Like, Oh yeah. By the way, he was telling the truth to the police. I know that was a little strange. And I'll just interject and just say that it's hard to believe this case of DID. The reason being is that you have the whole time you have him trying to like, make cover stories and lies and trying to make it favor him, uh, not favor, well, you know what I mean, to make it look in like he didn't do anything, right? And then, you know, the whole sketch artist thing, and you have all these attempts to get away with it. So it makes DID hard here. But I will admit, though, that throughout this whole entire case and all his actions, they're very sporadic and different. Like, everything is different. So it's kind of like it's up to the person that we tell the story to like, oh, my God. okay guys, do you think, you know, that he was telling like, does he really have this or is he just a compulsive liar and is making these crazy stories because he has done a lot of bad things to Kathy? I know what you're saying, because we do see a lot of changing in the personalities of Tom Bonney throughout the investigation where He, at first, really wanted to report this. He was, like, aggressively reporting it. Then he didn't care anything about it. And then then he was being aggressive. Then, yeah, I I don't know. It's it's very interesting. But then I think also, when you think about a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, he could have that. I think that Tom Bonney, and this is just totally my opinion, is psychologically disturbed on some level but I don't know what his diagnosis is obviously because I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist and I've never even spoken to him but I think that there is something happening here but Dr. Gillig also stated that one of the reasons why a DID diagnosis is so controversial is because patients described as having DID could potentially just be highly susceptible under hypnosis or like they could understand they're being given a good out. Like maybe Tom Bonnie was just highly suggestible and that's why he was doing this. Or did he realize, oh my God, I'm being given an out here. Let me take this and run. 
also, you're interviewing someone and recording them for 20, almost 24 hours. Yeah. So does that... Worse than a police interrogation. So does that play a part in his suggestibility throughout the process? Or maybe... Or it could be... You could use it as an argument to claim that that's uh, a proof that he might have this because... It was 23 hours worth of, of time that passed. Right. Like, you know, like, it, it's almost like everything that could be used uh, against could also be used to an prove. An argument for. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's an argument for. So it's very hard. Either way, Paul Dell diagnosed Bonnie with DID and stated that it was not him that had committed the murders, but it was his alter, Damien. Agreeing that this was the best way to go, Bonnie's lawyers entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. Dell assured them that his hours of tapes would prove that this was the truth. Now, in reality, this is a case that's going down in rural northern North Carolina in 1988. We are talking about the Bible Belt in America. So how, I mean, this is, it's confusing in the part of the defense lawyers is, how did they think that this was going to go over well? for their client saying that one of his alters was named Damien and he was a murderer. Like, I just, yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, I don't, I don't know. That's going to go over well, buddy. Also, like, how are you going to say that this man's going to receive a fair trial in the area where he committed this crime, right? Yeah. I think that if you were to take him to a neutral site, which I know that's, you know, that's kind of like iffy, but like, if you were to take him, like, let's say to, and I'm not just saying this because that's where we live, but if you were to take this to like... Well, no, you can't leave the state. I know you can't. But um, just for argument's sake, if you were to t- uh, go somewhere else where that, you know... Like, Religion's not prevalent. Correct. Would that change his outcome? I think that it wouldn't. And we'll get into it later on in the case. Okay. So the trial's going to begin to add to the spookiness of it all on Halloween 1988. The prosecution argued that Bonnie was obsessed with his daughter, Kathy, and killed her in a rage after reading the letter that she had written to her boyfriend. They also brought up his history of abuse and neglect. He was very aware of his actions that night. He wasn't insane. He knew the nature and quality of his act, and he knew the difference between right and wrong. Why? Because he knew enough to collect the shell casings and try and dispose of them. He knew enough to try and hide his crime afterwards. Um, So he was totally aware of what took place and he was trying to protect himself. He knew enough to go get the car and try to get it before the police got it. So, I mean, there was a lot of evidence that was pointing towards him being mentally competent during the commission of the crime. Another thing that the defense brought up is that he also confessed several times, even once to the media, and that was also shown to the jurors. And the defense are going to take on two strategies. The first one is most likely a backup that I believe would help with appeals if option two did not work out. So they said that Kathy had been shot 27 times. 18 of those bullets exited her body but none were recovered on the site. There was little blood at the scene and it might have happened elsewhere. Had this crime potentially occurred in Virginia and not North Carolina at all. So this theory was calling into question the fundamentals of the case. 
if this crime occurred in Virginia and the body was just disposed of in North Carolina and shot at in North Carolina, then you can't charge him with first degree murder in the state of North Carolina. He could be charged with the desecration of a corpse, but not murder. That would have to be tried in Virginia, which would mean the whole trial would have to move. And that would mean a mistrial. So that was their first thing was to call into question the fundamentals of the case. The second argument the defense had was multiple personality or DID. Paul Dell is going to get on the stand and explain to the jury uh, what DID was and why he believed that Tom Bonnie did not commit the murders, rather his alternate personality, Damien, which Mr. Bonnie had no recollection of, or he didn't even know Damien or his personalities just existed, that Damien committed the crime and that Bonnie had no idea what was going on and he had 23 hours of tapes to prove it. Now, when it came to the videotaped interview, the defense only wanted to show the jury portions of the tape in which the murder was confessed to. The prosecution argued that the jury needed context and they needed to watch all of it. Over several days, the jurors intently watched the 23 hours of the interview. Wow. Yes, they sat there for days watching it. In their closing arguments, the defense again explained what DID was and everything that came with it. And the fact that he was not responsible if he did not even know that these personalities existed. On top of that, should they even be here if the crime didn't happen in North Carolina? The prosecution again talked about all of the ways that Bonnie tried to cover up his crime. So how could he have not known about it? They also said that someone under hypnosis is highly suggestible and that Dr. Dell was not observing him, but was coaching him. At one point, he even said to Bonnie, you can do what you want. It's either you come out and talk to me or you're going to be sentenced to prison or to death if you stay in there. If I don't get any information, Bonnie didn't have to do anything. He took what was offered to him, a defense. Anyone else would have done the same thing. Now, it is true that Bonnie never admitted that he had DID or these alternate personalities. Like when the media asked him, do you have the devil living within your mind? He said, I don't know what's going on with me. That's just something that they brought up during trial. And after the seven-week trial ended, the jury had two questions to answer. First, did the crime even happen in North Carolina? If not, they would have to stop deliberating immediately. And two, was Bonnie insane when he killed his daughter? While they deliberated, Paul Dell found himself in the middle of a media frenzy that surrounded the case. And that calls into question about whether or not Dr. Dell got involved with the Tom Bonney case for his own personal gain because he was known as an expert on multiple personality disorders. That's that's a good point, actually, right? This doctor just comes out of nowhere and, like, wants to save the day. And, like, is he doing it to kind of, like, elevate his own career? Right. It's kind of, uh, it's an interesting, it's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting pitch. Yeah, Dr. Dell is still considered to be one of the 
highest scholars when it comes to DID. And he has done many different um, surveys and case studies on why DID continues to be so controversial and why people don't agree that it is a real thing. So, um, I don't know. I just think that, of course, he's going to do it to get, I don't want to say notoriety, but bring attention to the disorder that he specializes in. So you kind of can't fault a doctor for doing that. If he truly did think he had it and he truly did believe it was a real thing, then I mean, he's not really doing anything wrong. That's true. So when the jury came back, they determined that the crime had occurred in North Carolina and that he was guilty of the murder of his daughter, that he was not legally insane when it was committed. The jurors would also agree upon the death penalty for Tom Bonney. Wow. Yeah. Now, when the jurors were questioned after the trial, um, okay, so this is something that I just want to comment on because it's something that bothers me a little bit. I've read a lot about this case, and before the trial took place, there was a lot of discussion about how is a jury from rural North Carolina even going to understand what took place here and what multiple personality disorder is. And I just found that to be so very offensive to the jurors and to the people of rural North Carolina because course they can understand it just because someone's religious doesn't mean they don't understand what a psychological disorder is or they don't understand that um, someone may not be in control of all their faculties and that's the reason why they committed a crime I just found that to be like really insulting uh, especially because and I love that the jurors were able to do this and kind of just shut everyone up is that their interviews after their deliberations and the decisions were read were so very intelligent, very well spoken, very thought out. And the jurors said that what Tom Bonnie did to his daughter was especially heinous. A little law and order. A little law and this order. This is even before law and order. They did it. <laughs> they came up with it. Um, no, it's a legal term. But that what he did was especially heinous and that he had intended to kill his daughter that night. And it it showed in the evidence, the physical evidence that they were shown. And in regards to the tape that they watched, one juror said that the way that he was questioned was very suggestible and that the answers that he was supposed to give were supplied in the questions that he was asked. So they they believe that Tom Bonnie was kind of going with Dr. Dell versus coming up with these personalities himself. And, you know, they're the ones that watch the 23 hours of tape. So we have to really listen to what they're saying. And I just think it was really offensive. People were jerks. Um, well, to comment on that first part, I think that that is insulting. I think that when you um, it it doesn't take, um, you know, a, a college educated person. It, it, it really doesn't. Or to, rocket scientist. Right, to come up to that, to come up with a conclusion because you're being presented evidence, evidence, testimony, everything just all lumped up in one and you are going through it you know you're sifting through it all so you someone can't sit here and say to me well they they're uninformed they don't know nothing well they even even if you want to say that well maybe they were in the beginning but they were before they made the decision because they were given evidence so anyone that ever says that that's stupid because you are given everything you need to know in front of you and you have days and days and days to deliberate right 
So I, you know, I don't really have anything else to say. About and that again, before. it's it's a juror of his a jury of his peers, right? So, well, Tom Bonnie was able to get an appeal from that trial. Now, on appeal, Bonnie was granted another sentencing hearing because it was ruled that the judge in the original trial had made a mistake in his instructions about the death penalty to the jurors. So because of that, he got another sentencing hearing because he was sentenced to death. This hearing occurred on August 24th, 1992. Bonnie refused to speak or work with his lawyers at all during this sentencing hearing. He was again not aiding in his defense. His lawyers were flustered and did bring this up to the judge. During this sentencing hearing, his daughter, Susan, testified. Now, she's the one that is younger than Kathy, like the next sister. Okay. Susan did not testify in the last trial because she was scared of her father and did not know if he would return home or not. But now that she knew her father was in jail, she was a little bit more confident to take the stand. And she was older. She said that when her mother, herself, and Kathy returned home from the grocery store on the night of November 21st at 7 p.m., that her father was on the phone with a man named John. He then told them all that he was going to take Kathy with him to see a man about a truck that was for sale. After her father and Kathy left, Susan snuck out of the house and walked to the nearby 7-Eleven store where she saw them sitting in the car. Now she watched and waited for like what they were doing because she didn't want to go into the store until they left. Okay. Because she was sneaking out of the house. She said that she observed her father and Kathy leaving together in the car soon thereafter. Now, this calls into question Damien's story. Because remember, Damien said they didn't even go to the 7-Eleven. The 7-Eleven was to make the right and he made him take a left. So approximately two hours later, Tom Bonnie returned home and asked if Kathy was home but no one in the family had seen her since she left with him. Later that night, Susan went outside and looked into the car where she observed blood on the seat. Susan told her mother about the blood and her mother assured her that it was most likely just a dead animal that her father had picked up, but she never mentioned the blood to him, to her father. Susan also returned to the 7-Eleven store that evening to look for Kathy. Her father did not go out looking for Kathy that night or any night. Then she said that once the police were investigating her sister's disappearance, her father would laugh and laugh about Kathy being gone in front of them. It's really sad. Very. While she was testifying, Bonnie was talking to himself and pointing all over the courtroom. He could not be calmed. And after this incident, the judge ordered a psych evaluation to determine whether or not Tom Bonnie was fit to face the hearing or aid in his defense with his lawyers. The following day, the psychologist presented his findings. He stated that Tom Bonnie was unable to conduct and cooperate himself with his attorneys. 
The judge agreed and granted a mistrial. So Bonnie returned to death row without a death sentence. (laughs) That's crazy. So that brings us to 2004. It had been 12 years since that attempt at a sentence hearing, but Bonnie was still not deemed able to aid in his defense, so he was still unsentenced. But he was able to escape from prison. Get out of here. Yeah. On July 29th, 2004, he and another inmate were able to escape the maximum security prison by sliding into the trash compactor just before the truck left the facility. Once outside of the prison, the two men jumped out of the dumpster and stole a car. From there, they drove to Chesapeake, Virginia. He was found about a week later wandering the streets of Norfolk. Weeks later, his accomplice was found in Orlando, Florida. Tom Bonney said that he escaped to visit his mother's grave. His mother died while he was in prison. The two men had planned it all. They stole a key, made a copy, and it seemed like he was lucid enough to escape from prison. So in 2007, he was able to go to a sentencing hearing and he was sentenced to life in prison. He was spared the death penalty and he remains in jail today. But this case calls into question whether or not DID is a real thing. And in its wake is this just tragic story of this beautiful girl who was abused by her father, but stayed to protect her siblings. And it cost her her life because she was trying to have one of her own. Yeah, no, that is true. It's sad. Sad to see this go down this way. And sad to see, like, the father being able to, like, I don't want to say escape, like, the law. Because he was... You know, there was due process there and like he did go through what he needed to. But like he did everything he could to like evade getting caught in the first place and then go through all these like little channels to put off his sentencing and his, uh, you know, whether or not he was capable of, you know, uh, be there for his sentencing. So right. I, I think this case is very like confusing and it's hard to make a judgment call. And I think that that even goes to the judge and the jury and everything else. Like there were there were times where people were having a hard time questioning whether or not he was deemed fit or not. Yeah, and I think what you said earlier is actually the most interesting thing. Every piece of evidence that speaks against him having disassociative identity disorder is also evidence that he had it. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's it's odd. But I actually wanted to add one more thing when. They had a psychiatrist see if he was fit to um, to uh, work with his counsel, right? He they were said that, that, that he was told uh, the judge was told that he was not. So these are professionals, right? And he was able. It's it's like okay, was he able to trick a professional? Now in the actual trial, he did have um, his employees took the stand and they did say that he was a really street smart person. So was he able to trick all of these professionals? I don't know. I I think that it's more along the lines of I think there was something psychologically wrong with him, whether he was misdiagnosed that I don't know. But I think that he was very prone to mood swings and switching what seemed like switching personalities. Could it be borderline? Could it be antisocial? Could it be 
DID. I don't know that, but I think that there was something because many psychiatrists and psychologists saw him and deemed him to be incompetent. So, I mean, I don't, I think there's some truth to that. That doesn't mean he can't be criminally sophisticated. He can be criminally sophisticated and be mentally unstable. That's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, those that's things aren't mutually really da- exclusive. Right. That's what makes someone extremely dangerous. Um, right. <clears throat> I think that, to make it simple, I think it's the fact that he had something definitely wrong with him and it really couldn't be pinpointed. But there was something that was not right. So I completely agree with you. And this is a really interesting case and we cannot wait to hear what you think about it and what your opinions on this are. Um, But before we go, we do want to thank our new patrons from Patreon. We have Nancy Clark, Jennifer Smith, Katerina Eklund, Brooke Harvey, Stephanie LaRose, Carrie Chapman, Charlene, Courtney, Ashley Renee, up to her pledge. Thanks, Ashley. Laura M., Stacy. Ryan Chavez, Lucy, and Abigail D'Souza. Thank you so much for your donations, and we hope that you are enjoying all of those Patreon episodes. And if you want to join our Patreon and get two bonus episodes a month, you can do that at patreon.com slash couple. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.